Our series is called Lenses, and we're, we're talking about the fact that we don't just take our faith out on Sunday or during a quiet time and look at it. It's something we look through. We look through the gospel. We look through our faith. We look through the truth. Last week, we talked about truth and how truth is something that uh, sometimes we have to live it forwards and then love it backwards. This morning, we're going to be talking about wisdom. Wisdom is applied knowledge. Wisdom is practical knowledge. In the, in the Greek, the, the word is sophia. We get our words like sophistication from it or sophistry. And, and, and the connotation there is, is something that has to do with uh, sort of rhetorical method. In this case, wisdom is practical knowledge. It's, it's not just to know the truth and that truth transcends and that truth lines up with what is. It's being able to apply knowledge to what really is. It's being able to to take what we know and see the world in such a way that when we apply our knowledge, we apply it in a way that matches up with the way things really are. From the Word of God, James chapter 1, starting with verse 5. Hear God's Word this morning. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly one Boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. May God bless us this morning through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Father, bless us now through your word, not only to understand it in our heads, but to believe it in our hearts that we may live it through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to pick on Muhammad Ali this morning, but, you know, affectionately. Uh, we all love Muhammad Ali, or loved him. But uh, there's an urban legend, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I think it probably matches up with what we know about him. But he was riding on an airplane, and uh, he didn't have his seatbelt fastened. And the, uh, the flight attendant came by and said, you need to, to buckle up, Mr. Ali. And, uh, and he said, Superman doesn't need a, a, a safety belt. And she looked at him and she said, Superman doesn't need an airplane. <laughs> I may have told you that before, but I love that because it takes us right to uh, the heart of wisdom, and that is to seek it, to know that we need it, to know that we are not sufficient on our own. So uh, it, there is a sense of, a deep sense of quiet strength that comes with being wise, with having wisdom. There's a quiet strength that comes with wisdom. So let's look at the, how that quiet strength comes to us. The ways that we apply knowledge wisely. So, so first of all, it's, it's simply the wise person who has that quiet strength is someone who knows their source. Somebody who, who is increasing in wisdom and, and therefore has, has a depth of quiet strength, knows their source and continues to seek their source 
throughout their whole life. They, in other words, they remain teachable. They continue to turn to God again and again as the source of light and life. They don't say, okay, God, I'll take it from here, or, you know, this is good enough, or I'm, I'm comparing myself to others, and I, I know a lot more than other people. They, they continue to put themselves in the position to grow in wisdom. Jesus himself grew in wisdom. That, doesn't that blow your mind? You think, well, he was the perfect, the perfect human being, and yet he continued to seek the Lord. There was a rhythm to his life where he pulled away from the crowds, where he sought God in solitude, where he spent time with God. Are you spending time? Do you have time alone with God? If Jesus needed that time, how much more do we need that time? Jesus himself pulled away from the crowds. Why was he so effective? In the midst of the crowd, because he, he had rhythm to his life, he pulled away from the crowds. You know, in, in, the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Levite goes across the street and avoids, you know, what might have been a dead body. Didn't know whether or not the, 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 the person who needed help along the way was, was alive or dead. And so following the purity laws sort of avoided it. So did, the, so did the priest. The priest went to the other side and avoided that because, you know, the, to be pure and, and to be somebody who was, uh, who was somebody of stature, somebody you might look at and say, well, that's a wise person. That's somebody of, of stature. They, they kind of layered over the top of, of what we're called to do and to be, to love God and love others, even others in your path, especially others in your path that need help. They put a layer of this sort of this purity doctrine on top of everything. And so they avoided that in order to remain uh, clean and not have to go through this ceremonial uh, uh, rigmarole of getting clean again after, after being close to somebody who needed their help that turned out to, to be dead. That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is about. And Jesus Jesus celebrates the Good Samaritan because he went to the person who needed him. Jesus pursues the sinner. Jesus speaks to the woman at the well. Jesus interacts with the tax collector, Zacchaeus, even Matthew, who is transformed because of Jesus' interaction. Why was he able to have that quiet strength and didn't have to rely on the purity laws? Because he pulled away. He continued to seek his source. Jesus spent time with God. A guy named Rod Dreher uh, has written a book called The Benedict Option, and he looks out at culture and sees its drift, and he says, you know, we need to, we need to recognize that there are, are times when we need to pull away, and even as a church, that we need to have clear boundaries, boundaries. He's been criticized as, as sort of uh, advocating for a holy huddle, but that's, that's to mischaracterize what he's saying. He's saying we simply need boundaries. We need times away. We need to be able to regroup so that we can move out into the world in strength. Quiet strength. That's wisdom. Those who continue to seek after God. A guy named Andy Crouch, I was listening to an interview with him a week or so ago. And Andy is a great thinker, one of the thought leaders in our country right now. He's written a bunch of great books on culture and how to engage and how, how, how Christians are called to even to, to create culture and to, and, to, uh, and to be in the arts and to be in politics, to be in science, to be in education. But one of the things that he, to, to be in child rearing, that's right. 
but, but one of the things that, 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 uh, that he says is, is uh, he, he draws lines in terms of technology. He says, you know, uh, we have rules, and, and we had these, this rule in our house uh, for our kids when they were growing up. Uh, you, you left your, your phone in the kitchen at night when you went to bed. You don't, you don't take the screens into your bedroom. You leave them in the kitchen. They need to be recharged anyway because you've been using it all day. No. But, but, but you don't take that to the kitchen. And, and I have my own personal rule. When I, when I take my iPad to, to, to bed, it's to read. I, I, I draw the line. There's no browsing. There's no interacting with social media. There's no, nothing of that except to read. And so what are, where are your boundaries? What are your lines? How do you create a rhythm to your life where you continue to put yourself in a position where God can speak to you, where you can seek the source? What are the boundaries? James is a, a collection of wisdom. Uh, people have faulted uh, the, the writing of, of this, this letter as being sort of, um, sort of haphazard and not systematic in any way. James was the brother of Jesus, and he, he recognized that Jesus wasn't just adhering to a set of laws, but Jesus was taking principles and applying them, and, and that's, that's, that's what he's saying throughout his, his letter. Learn the principles, it's so much easier just to pull the lever and to say, okay, what button, what's the easy button to push and what's the rule to follow? But wisdom, wisdom continues to seek the source that no matter what you're facing and where you're going, whether you're meeting Matthew, a tax collector, or Zacchaeus, or, or you're meeting your, the own, your own woman at the well in your life, that you know how to respond because you have sought the source that you're not compromised by being out in the world and engaging it intentionally. Wise people have quiet strength because they seek the source. Wise people have quiet strength because they embrace limits. They know their constraints and they see the benefits of living within their design, their designed constraints. That human beings were made, were created and the quote that I want to read you is down here <laughs> from Wendell Berry. Listen to this. It's a, he's a poet, and so he paints this incredible contrasting picture between those who would seek to uh, cast off the limits and constraints as if we were our own creators. He says this. If we are creatures, then... We have purpose and meaning, but also limits. If we see ourselves in the world around us as a machine, then we believe the Faustian myth of our own limitless power to recreate ourselves. Human and earthly limits, properly understood, are not confinements, but rather inducements to a formal elaboration and elegance to fullness of relationship and meaning. Are you following me? See, he's contrasting. He's saying, look, we're not machines where we are sort of in charge of, of how we work, how we function, even how our bodies are designed to function. We don't recreate ourselves as if there were no meaning, as if we only inject meaning into life because we're in charge recreating meaning. We belong not to ourselves, and so we embrace limits, and we find greater fullness there. It's one of the ways we live it forward and love it backwards. 
It's why God, who is the only limitless being, doesn't define himself. He says, I am that I am, when, he, when asked his name. Yahweh means I am, the great I am. But we are his creatures dependent upon that unconditional existence of God from everlasting to everlasting. And so we embrace those limits and find fullness therein. So for example, although we continue to seek our source, although we are open-minded in, in that we continue to seek after truth our whole lives long, the purpose of an open mind, Chesterton said, the purpose of an open mind, like an open mouth, is to close again on something that nourishes you. And so we don't just walk around open-minded and never drawing any conclusions as if there weren't constraints that we can know. A lot of times we think we're kind of sheepish about uh, what we know because we don't know everything. But nobody knows everything. And, it's, and so we all have to operate on the basis of faith in some ways. And so to embrace constraints, to embrace our limits, is to be wise. It's a little like this. Here's an illustration of... Uh, you know, a parent-child relationship when a child is young, it's very important that a parent uh, draw lines for the child. Not in a harsh way, not in a mean way, not in an angry way, but firmly drawing lines. You know what happens when you don't draw those lines. When parents just want to, to be their, their child's friend, they, they have friends, they need a parent, they need leadership, they need, they need to know that, that, you know, when they're very young, they just need to know uh, that there are consequences that will rain down on them if they run out into the street so that they don't run out into the street. And that's good. Limits are good. We can see it in the parent-child relationship. Why don't we see it all the time? In the relationship that we have with God. Because we want to be our own recreator, as Wendell Berry says. We're double-minded. We're sheepish about the things that we know line up with what really is true. And so we have a private ethic when it comes to uh, certain uh, hot-button issues. And then we have a public ethic. So you'll hear some people say, I am for the rights of the unborn, privately. But publicly, you know, I, I believe that people in a civil society can do whatever they want to do. Well, if you believe that, that we are created by God and that life begins in the womb, and, and you believe that, that you can't make a tomato plant grow, you can't make a human being grow, there's mystery to the way that God brings life into the womb, then, then we must have great reverence for life, especially unborn life, the most vulnerable lives. Say, Tim, you haven't talked about these kind of hot-button issues and weighed in hard on them yet. Well, I've been waiting a few years to make sure that y'all... Y'all know that I, I mean well because this is the point. The point is that we should have confidence not to beat up people who have made the mistake of ending pregnancies out of their own sense of, of concern about themselves. But to be able to say, this is how we're for human life, even people who have done that. We've spent way too many decades since... Uh, since abortion was legalized, we spent way too many decades beating up on the culture for, for, for being uh, pro-choice. 
we need to learn to articulate how we are for people who have had abortions. We need to be able to articulate how the constraints bring human flourishing. We need to know how to speak into these issues without alienating people and say that that there's a great mystery to life and we lose that mystery. It falls out when we become our own recreators. Michael Behe is a... uh, is a scientist, he's a, a biomechanics uh, background, and he has is, he is, uh, studied the flagellum of a bacteria that has 30 proteins that makes it create this rotor effect that propels it unlike anything that humankind has ever seen or made. And it is an irreducible, irreducibly complex machine. Those 30 proteins, you can't like have, there are no intermediate forms to create this thing. Like, you, don't, you can't have 28 of the proteins and have it work. Now, why am I bringing up all this stuff? Well, here's the reason. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? Do you have a sense of reverence and awe for human life? Even in its limits? If you do, you begin to see the world in that way. You begin to see every issue in that way. And you begin to engage people as someone who is for them, as creatures who will live forever. Not accommodating and saying, I've got a private ethic and a a public social ethic. See, this is what what James is saying. Don't be double-minded. If you want wisdom, seek your source, embrace your limits. And finally this, people who have quiet strength, the wise people who have quiet strength, they know their vulnerabilities. They know their source, they know their limits, they know their vulnerabilities. And they embrace them. And they engage others on the level of their vulnerabilities. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about, in a way, emotional intelligence, right? When somebody, everybody has an opinion, right? Everybody has armpits. Everybody has an opinion, right? <laughs> Sometimes their opinions don't smell very good, right? <laughs> opinions are like armpits. Everybody has one. And or maybe a better image because that's kind of gross. Uh, where on the iceberg are you having your conversation? Only at the part, the 10% that's peeking out of the surface of the water? Or in the 90% where motives lie? Where values live? Do you know the person across from you who has an opposing point of view? Do you know the value under their opinion? Or are you just ready to bring the hammer down because they're ignorant? Right? This is not a godly and wise, quiet strength that we demonstrate when we hammer people for having an opposing point of view. We need to learn to recognize that there's more under the surface, that there is a values layer. I love watching premarital couples talk to each other. I, I, I get them to talk to each other in such a way that they get under the surface. And so, so uh, uh, the, 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 one, the woman may say 
to, to the man, um, I want you to have a kind tone of voice, right? I want you always to have a kind tone of voice. And he'll say, um, so you're saying that I'm mean to you? You're saying that I, and he gets defensive, right? And he said, are you saying that I, I mean, it sounds like you're saying I, I'm, I'm, I've, I've got a harsh tone of voice. And I'm like, yeah, right there. <laughs> but, but, when, but when he just says it back to her, he says, so you're, you're asking me, to, you're asking me to, to always speak kindly to you. She says, yeah, because I, I know that it's happening now, and I see it now, and I celebrate how we interact with each other. And so he says, and then he says, so you're, you're afraid that maybe I'll be different when we're married. And I'm like, boom, you got it. You got under the surface, not just of the opinion, but you connected with the fear that's driving, the value that's driving, the opinion or the concern. Oh, it's powerful to see that. And, and these are the ways that we're called to engage as, as, as people of wisdom. Not just to react, but to engage people down, further down the iceberg, if you will. There's a value under the opinion. Jesus, when he engages the woman at the well, he, she doesn't feel judged. He calls her out, right? He says, you know, the, the man you're, you're living with right now isn't your husband, right? And yet, she is inspired by the way that she engages it. But because why? Because she see, he sees her as a soul. He realizes that there are some things that she needs as a creature created in the image and likeness of God, as a creature who's going to live for eternity. He engages her on the level of somebody who has a value, who has a need. And we're called and capable of doing the same. With a rich young ruler, he realizes you know, he, he draws a line, and sometimes it's to be compassionate, like with the woman at the well, and sometimes it's to draw the line, right, with the, with the rich young ruler. Jonathan Haidt is a, is a researcher. He, uh, he's a Yale professor. He's, uh, he writes for the New York Times uh, and uh, is, has written a book called The Righteous Mind, and he, he's shown that there are six different uh, foundations or moral foundations that people have, and, and, and just for the simplicity of this morning... Uh, you know, people who are on the left of the political spectrum tend to base their opinions on the value of care and compassion. People on the right uh, tend to base their opinions and their concerns on the foundation of, of authority and sanctity. We need both. And we're called to live in the tension between boundaries and compassion. And we're capable of doing that, of engaging people at the level of their values without alienating them. To be able to move towards the culture in quiet strength, to be able to move towards an opposing point of view in quiet strength, to be able to, to speak wisdom is to be able to apply what we know in light of who we know in light of eternity. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you that you lived among us full of grace and truth, not an either-or proposition, but full, 100% grace, 100% truth. There's such mystery and power there 
Oh, and it's so unwieldy, God, we'd rather know what easy button to push and what rules to follow and what purity standard we could achieve. But you've called us, God, to be wise, to engage our worlds and even the ideas within our own minds, looking more clearly at the way things really are. God, help us, we pray. Give us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.